It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, 505 on the West Coast. It is the Thursday edition of Lifeline unfolding before your shell-like ears for this May 14th. Trust you're having a good week so far in the the new normal that we're all getting used to here. And um, as you do so, maybe not necessarily commuting, but wherever you might happen to be, delighted that you've... uh, Decided to spend some time with us tonight, and as uh, as you do so, we're going to try to uh, make it uh, valuable for you and a wise investment. Got a great lineup of guests coming up later on in tonight's program, which I'll tell you more about that momentarily. That's what they call the tease. <laughs> right now, though, let's talk about the current quarantine. Let's talk about what appears to be very disjointed approaches from the federal level to the state level to local counties and municipalities. Uh, to be sure, much of this needs to be decided at a local level. And I think that simply makes sense because the impact of COVID-19 in a city like Los Angeles will not be the same as it is in, in uh, Butte, Montana. But with that, it's starting to demonstrate some clouded thinking by local representatives. Witness, for example, the fact that San Mateo County over the last week Average 25 new cases of COVID-19, that's per day, and they experience approximately 1.3 deaths per day. Now, that's San Mateo. Next town or next county down in Santa Clara, average 16 new cases a day, just under one death per day, with a population, I might add, of two and a half times the size of San Mateo County. And yet... While clearly San Mateo is not managing this as well as Santa Clara, San Mateo is easing its stay-at-home order, but Santa Clara is not. (laughs) And we're supposed to trust the people making these decisions. Let's get some insights on all of this. Dr. Lonnie Chen joins us, research fellow at the Hoover Institution, director of domestic policy studies at Stanford University. Dr. Chen, always a delight to have you join us. If, If they're all reading the same information if the the guidance that has come out of Washington and the CDC and the statistics are are largely based on the same empirical evidence and information then why do we see such a disjointed fashion in which there seems to be a misapplication where some states are going completely overboard others not far enough why is this well, you're asking exactly the right question, and, and I think not only are you finding inconsistencies between states, but as you noted very well uh, in the data between different parts of the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, you're noticing differences there as well. Look, uh, when, when this whole crisis initially started, you had a coordinated effort between the different Bay Area counties and the city of San Francisco to come up with a plan in terms of keeping people sheltered in place. And what was the justification for that? We were said, look, we don't want the health care. They don't want the health care system to be overburdened. They don't want hospitals to be overburdened. Perfectly reasonable uh, rationale. Most uh, people in this area took it very seriously and said, look, we're going to do our part, even though it's a a tough thing to do, we're going to do our part. The problem is now we're several months uh, into this shutdown, and um, the data no longer suggests that hospital overcrowding and health system overwhelming is a problem. In fact, as you just noted in the data, we've gotten to a relatively low point of transmission uh, in, in several counties. 
And the likelihood that we overwhelm intensive care units in hospitals in the Bay Area is extremely low. So what's the justification now? And this is the problem, you see. The, 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 the bars keep shifting. The goals keep shifting. Uh, and not only that, but you've got different counties, some of which are right next to each other, making very different decisions about when they're going to lift their stay-at-home orders, when they're going to allow for people to go out and resume somewhat normal activity. Uh, none of this makes any kind of sense in any rational, uh, quote, data-driven, science-driven world. And, and, of course, we're beginning to see some of this come to bear in terms of the way the population is responding because I think of a lack of confidence. As a result, folks are saying, look, you know, we just want to take things into our own hands because you're demonstrating we can't trust you because of the severe inconsistencies. And not only in inconsistencies, Dr. Chen, in terms of application of who stays home, who doesn't, but, but even in terms of looking at the application of stay-at-home orders in light of laws. And we are a nation of laws, to be sure, and those laws are put in place for a very important reason. And the number of gubernatorial scoff laws, along with uh, mayors and, and um, even boards of supervisors of counties, is, is a little shocking. Um, we've seen, for example, just today, a lawsuit filed against the state of Oregon because of draconian measures that are not allowing churches to gather. And in Wisconsin, the Supreme Court there has just said to Democrat Governor Tony Evans, hey, uh, forget the current shelter-in-place extension because you're doing this in violation of your own state's laws. Why, why do they not seem to understand this? You know, I think a lot of times these politicians, they, they get into office and, and they get up ahead of steam and they forget who they work for. They forget that they work for the people who they represent. And they get so intent on protecting their own power and wielding their own power that they forget that, you know, really they're responsible ultimately for the people who elected them. I, I don't know if you followed, Craig, the story out of Pennsylvania where the health commissioner in Pennsylvania, who's appointed by the governor there, she went out publicly and said to all Pennsylvanians, it's safe to keep your loved ones in nursing homes. Then what does she do? She pulls her own mother out of a nursing home. That's an example of that's an example of the kind of abuse of power that gets people upset. And I understand why people get upset. I understand why people are upset about these stay-at-home orders. I understand that. And and you cannot continue to wield power in a way that is unaccountable, where you don't explain what your thinking is, or you merely say, if you don't follow my dictates, you want to kill people. You're responsible for people's lives if you don't follow my public health orders. That's not good enough anymore. We need to hear why, we need to hear how, and we need to understand how these policymakers are arriving at the decisions they're arriving at. Well, particularly since they are impacting every one of our lives to, to the smallest degree and will undoubtedly for, who knows, maybe years to come in, in the wake of the economic damage of it all. You know, I'm reminded when we were kids, uh, sometimes there was always that challenge with our parents and uh, that old notion, do as I say, don't do as I do. Well, if that was problematic dealing with our parents when we were kids, imagine how problematic that is when it's the governor who's essentially saying that. Do as I say, but don't do as I do. Hey, Lonnie, before we let you go, there, there's one breaking story I've got to get you to comment on. Uh, new California COVID-19 governor's budget proposal, which reduces money for state prisons, prioritizes prison closures, 
This even as in Los Angeles County, prisoners there are actively seeking to contract COVID-19 and the hope that they will grant them a get-out-of-jail card. So somehow now we're determining that because prisoners may potentially be at risk for health reasons, that they are somehow magically no longer a risk to the public. I, I thought part of the idea of incarceration was to not only hand down punishment for crimes, but also to protect the greater public. Is there a move now to try and sort of dispense with that, take advantage of COVID-19 in that sense? Well, here's the problem. The the issue you've raised is precisely the challenge that we see in a lot of different kinds of policies that are being proposed, which is no one is thinking about the other side of this. No one is thinking what we need to weigh this against. You raise a good point. You start shutting down prisons. You start allowing people who uh, probably ought to ought to remain behind bars. You start allowing people to exit those facilities. You're going to have consequences. There are there you see a rise in crime potentially, a rise in violent crime in some cases. Those um, side effects are not accounted for. In the same way, you know, I'll give you an example. We shut down all the schools, and if you keep those schools shut all the way through the fall, and you don't allow even some students to come back in. You're going to have people, you're going to have kids who are missing out on their education. You're going to have some people who don't have access to technology. What are you going to do about them? Or think about how, because we basically shut down healthcare facilities for the last couple of months, you're not going to have people getting early interventions for cancers, for uh, chronic conditions, and that's going to cause further health problems. So we've, we've got to be a little smarter about this, Craig. We've really got to think about what the impacts of policy are that are not just immediately, hey, what do I need to do right now to make it look like I'm trying to uh, do everything I can to stop coronavirus? It's a worthwhile goal, but you've got to balance that against the other side. And no smart policymaker should be able to do this without balancing both sides of the story. And I think at the end of the day, listen, when the house is on fire, nobody blames the fire department when they show up and point the hose and, and to put the fire out and perhaps in the process do some significant water damage. But the idea is in the moment with the emergency raging, you do what you need to do to get the fire put out. But we're not in the moment anymore. This is not something that just was sprung on us yesterday. We've got two and a half, three months in. And to be proposing some of these rash policy changes without really giving thought to the broader, the broader, deeper implications long-term is just not only absolute foolishness, but we think we've seen damage and pain and suffering in this country right now because of the disease aspect of COVID-19. Just watch what happens if this runs unabated and we allow the deterioration of our constitutional rights, the sanity of the way in which we... we are a nation under the rule of law. Uh, if you begin to dispense with all of that, the carnage that could be done to the future of this nation could be pretty significant, couldn't it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we, we need to remember we are a country built on, on the rule of law. We are a country built on the, governed being, um, the, the governing being accountable to the governed. And if we move away from these basic principles, uh, you know, it, it's going to be a big challenge. If we're no longer to, you know, no longer able to freely gather uh, and, and worship our God, if we're not able to freely gather and express our point of view, um, you know, th those are significant problems. And, and more than that, they are fundamental challenges to our identity as Americans. So we need to be very careful here. You know, I, I think everybody wants this coronavirus to go away. Everyone wants the best health, health outcomes for as many people as possible. But we have to get a little bit smarter about how we're doing things, because right now this, this uh, one-size-fits-all policy is just not going to work.
Dr. Lonnie Chen, again, Director of Domestic Policy Studies at Stanford University and Research Fellow at the Hoover Institution. Dr. Chen's musings can be read at hoover.org. Dr. Chen, as always, thank you for being with us. We're going to carry on part of this conversation around the corner. Pete Hutchinson is going to join us. He's an attorney and the president of Landmark Legal Foundation. We'll talk about another area where we seem to have the house set on fire, and that is the whole issue of the fall general election. We'll talk about it as Lifeline continues. Get a look at traffic for you now, 517 the clock. And on traffic, we swing over to the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Discussing some of the, the hodgepodge fashion in which local cities, municipalities, the counties, and of course states are applying shelter-in-place regulations in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic and the panicked fashion in which even two and a half months into this, they can't quite seem to get their story straight. Well, that's compounded by another area of rising concern. And, and, and to be sure, it's seemingly a forgotten notion now that as we've been obsessed over the last two months with COVID-19, we have forgotten that we are in a presidential election year. And with that, voters have been going to the polls as best they can in primaries. Come November, we're all supposed to gather at the polls and cast our vote. Problem is, how do you do that safely? And there's a growing mantra that we need to push for election reform and make a shift into vote by mail. Now, as someone that has found the hours that I work against the time when the polls are open to be um, inconvenient at best, I have voted absentee, as we call it here in California, for years. In fact, I think one, one year, for some reason, I mislaid the ballot and I struggled to remember where the polling place was that I used to go to because I hadn't been there in so many years. And while certainly there's a lot of convenience to the idea, is the notion that we move headstrong into the November election with vote by mail for the entire country a good one? Is it even a practical one? How about this? Is it even a legal one from the congressional viewpoint? Pete Hutchinson is a lawyer and president of Landmark Legal Foundation who helps shed some light on all of this. And while certainly there seems to be a growing number of Americans, Pete, thanks for joining us, by the way, who support the idea of this at least as an option, I, I have to wonder whether or not this rush to try and pull it off and do so in time for November is really a practical one. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll give you the setup question by saying this. If in my particular precinct... Um, 10 people out of the 1,000 that are registered votes by mail. When they tabulate that information, you know, you don't necessarily have to get it done on election day because the percentile of overall voting is generally so small, it never, hardly ever impacts the outcome. But even if you did, even if you wanted to make sure that when you announce the totals the night of the election that they include all of the absentee balloting, you can handle that. But what happens when you shift it from not 10 of the 1,000, but 950 of the 1,000. And Americans do as we typically do with our income taxes. We wait till the very last moment, meaning the day before or the day of, to get the postmark 
And all of a sudden now, a local municipality polling place is inundated with thousands of ballots that have to be counted. I mean, as as convenient as this sounds, is it even practical? Well, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, this is a terrible idea for a lot of reasons. Uh, the inundation of voting officials is just is just one terrible component here. You know, uh, the Postal Service is looking at uh, a potential bankruptcy problem. They're they're going to Congress for for aid. They are already becoming overwhelmed with uh, with uh, postage with uh, with mailing. Uh, but but here's the real problem. And California is really a case study in how not to uh, go about voting. You've got a system set up out there where uh, people who are non-citizens can get driver's licenses. And when they go to get their driver's license on the, on the form they use, it's the same form everybody else uses out there. There's a box to check uh, for voter registration. Now, if a non-citizen checks the box on his uh, license that I'm not a citizen or I can't demonstrate citizenship and the vote and the, and then clicks uh, or checks uh, that he wants to register to vote the, your state laws prohibit the motor vehicle people from 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 pointing that out to the non-citizen and then the voter the uh, the license bureau the state bureau is not allowed to segregate out those people and and let the Secretary of State know about it. So you have a system out there where you have the potential for ineligible voters to be registered. You also have the compound problem that, uh, you know, all these people who are waiting around for their their, uh, stimulus check to show up, uh, many of them aren't getting them because they've changed addresses in the last year. Well, these people file tax returns every year. Uh, voter registrations are not done every year. There are millions of people on voter rolls throughout the country who have old addresses on there. And under the uh, bill that the Democrats, your local congresswoman, has proposed, uh, they want to automatically and require every state in the union to do this, by the way. They want every voter, every registered voter, to receive a ballot in the mail. Now, those ballots, who knows where they're going to go, who knows who's going to get them, and who knows who's going to cast those ballots. It's a very dangerous situation for the integrity of our voting system. Now, at Landmark Legal Foundation, we're really upset about it. (laughs) And, and, And rightfully so. I mean, when you consider not only things that are extremely problematic, COVID-19 notwithstanding, such as California's disastrous motor voter bill, this is exacerbated by a point that you just made. People register, they vote, then they move, they forget, they never re-register. And so meanwhile, that registration, unless there is some functionality within a state system to kick people off if they have not voted in X number of election cycles uh, to kind of purge the, the voting rolls, if, if that doesn't happen, well, now all of a sudden ballots are showing up to somebody's house. Let's say there were three former people that lived at a residence Right. Ballots have been mailed out. They've moved moved on to some other location long since then. And somebody who now lives at that address that's less than honest says, whoopee, look at me. I get a chance to vote for Bernie Sanders not once, not twice, but three times. And who's going to sit and scrutinize 
the signatures and what card are they going to be looking at this when you have umpteen millions of voters across the country and, and your job as the local election official is just to count boxes and count heads and come up with a final tally. I mean, Pete, there is no aspect of this that seems to make sense whatsoever. No, and you know, you raise an important point there. Who's going to be able to to confirm all these signatures if you have 90% of the people uh, filing or voting by absentee ballot? The election officials will be overwhelmed, too. It's it's just such a bad idea. But, but the left really likes chaos at election time. You know, they come in at the last minute and try to extend voting hours, and then they claim that there's, uh, you know, that, that people are being disenfranchised. They like chaos, and, and that's uh, part of what's going on here. But uh, there's, there are several months till the November election. Accommodations can be made. People are going and getting food. Now, I know California has an extremely strict uh, lockdown going on out there, but even Californians are allowed to go get food. Uh, and uh, and if, that, if that can take place right now, then by November we can work out a, a, uh, an effective uh, balloting system. We do not need to go to this system that is fraught with dangers uh, and, and potential for fraud. Now, Pete, let me ask you a question, and I'll preface this by saying for the longest time I was steadfast against it. But as we see problems rising in so many parts of the country, uh, not least of which the, the most recent disaster in April in Wisconsin uh, that touched on this very same topic, and I've seen this in play in foreign countries where not only do they encourage you to vote, um, if you don't vote, there's a small penalty that I'm not so sure about, but they require a voter ID. You have to have a national identity card that is surefire so that when you go into the polling place, place, they know that you have a right to be there. And as much as I have historically pushed, pushed back at this notion for a variety of reasons, I'm wondering, just for the future sake of safety and sanity and preservation of the integrity of the ballot box across the country. Is this a notion whose time has come, and is it even practical? Well, I'm not a fan of a national ID, but, but I do think that it's important that voters demonstrate that they are who they present themselves to be, and many states require that. Most states, if not all, require that uh, some sort of verification of identity. Now, if it's a photo ID, which many states require now and the Supreme Court is, is, has allowed, uh, you know, that that's great. But the important point here from my viewpoint is that the Constitution leaves to the individual states the authority to regulate elections. And uh, if we go to some sort of national requirement, and there are national requirements, you know, voting at 18, women can vote. Uh, uh, the, there, there are there are national rules, but where they're not, you know, absolutely necessary or imposed by constitutional amendment, then then uh, let's leave it to the states. Some states may not need to to have as rigorous an ID. Uh, requirement. You know, uh, New Hampshire, for example, smaller states. California does need that sort of verification. Uh, but let's leave it to the local states to make their own rules and uh, and 
that I mean, that's the, that's the way it was set up by the Constitution, and I'm all for it. And as you point out, if there is uh, such a hot and bothered desire nationally to uh, implement some sort of a national standard, then there is a means by which that can be accomplished. It's called an amendment to the United States Constitution. Congress didn't vote a law and just say, we're going to let women vote. It had to be um, ratified and codified within the United States Constitution. So if we all gather and you can get a constitutional Congress uh, together and then uh, get a majority of the states to agree, then I think it's, a, you know, maybe it's an idea whose time has come. But until then, it, as you're suggesting, there is no real legal methodology by which this can be mandated at the federal level. So let's say, let the states do what they know is best to do. And, um, you know, in the meanwhile, I, we have as much of a problem of getting people to vote, let alone making sure the right ones are voting. So challenges to be sure all the way around. Uh, Pete, take a quick moment. Tell us a bit about Landmark Legal. Well, Landmark Legal Foundation, we've been around since 1976. We're a public interest law firm. We, we defend the Constitution. We, we, uh, we promote border security and uh, and uh, have a have a real problem with sanctuary cities that uh, that are all around you in California. Um, we we are uh, for many many years we've been fighting the uh, big government uh, administrative state where we can primarily in the area of uh, environmental regulation. Uh, so so we're uh, we're very small, but uh, we're nationwide. Our our former president and chairman of the board is Mark Levin, who. Uh, is uh, a uh, one of your brethren on the radio, and uh, so that's you know that's what we're all about. But people can learn more about us at our website, which is at landmarklegal.org, and uh, go snoop around there. and And uh, we have a mailing list you can sign up for. and And uh, we don't inundate people, but uh, we think what we're doing is important, and we appreciate uh, and I appreciate you having me on your show. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to, to educate our listeners. There is Pete Hutchinson, president of Landmark Legal Foundation, on the web at landmarklegal.org. 5.35, you're a bit late, so let's get you caught up on some traffic right now as we do so from the KFAX Traffic Center. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Over the last uh, two and a half months now, I guess, some going on nearly three, internet searches regarding COVID-19 and certainly Clorox haven't been the only online traffic that's increased with the spread of this pandemic. In fact, globally, a parallel surge has occurred in the consumption of online pornography. Pornography consumption is sadly often overlooked when it comes to the idea that some people think simply watching porn is dismissed as inevitable or something that quote-unquote just happens when people become bored or are temporarily unemployed. The world's largest porn site that will be intentionally nameless here had over 42 billion views, B billion views in 2019, and is proving to be a huge beneficiary of the current shelter-in-place, sowing a surge by almost 20% worldwide in the United States, an increase by 57%. Wouldn't a legitimate business hope for those kinds of numbers? 
The apparent benevolence of the company in providing additional material for free should not distract from the underlying misogyny nor damage done to relationships by pornography. Joining us now with some insights, Pastor Clay Allen, founder and president of Avenue, a sexual restoration ministry founded along with his wife, Susan. Information available on the web at avenue.works. That's avenue.works. And Clay, is always great to have you with us. Thank you, Craig. A joy to be with you today. Wow, these numbers, 57% increase, and that's what they admit to, and that's just one site. Uh, clearly, this has moved into, if there's a health pandemic going on, there certainly is a potential marital relationship health pandemic that may be taking place in the wake of COVID-19, especially when you hear these numbers. Yeah, it's it's probably the greatest silent and secret invasion in North America, as well as other parts of the world that's ever taken place. Sadly, uh, a lot of our church family is unaware of this taking place. And, um, you know, of course, when we look at something like this, uh, it doesn't just affect the user. Uh, families, entire uh, financial uh, structures of families, even their churches are impacted. And what's really incredible about this is not just does this affect an individual, but it affects their calling. Uh, it affects their hearts, their minds, their lives, their very destinies. All of this is being altered for the worse in this devastating process. What started this actually was uh, these porn distributors had this idea that if people were going to be sheltering in place, they're going to offer free, quote-unquote, 30-day uh, subscriptions. And the idea behind it is on day 31 they'd get a windfall because people would be so addicted to this uh, garbage that um, that they wouldn't uh, be able to uh, break free from it. And then sadly, that's that's very, very true. Uh, that's the downside of it. Uh, there is an upside to this, of course, and uh, that's what I what I live for is to see people broke, broke breaking free from this. And um, but that that's really what's going on. This invasion is very intense. It's very widespread. It's very broad and deep. And uh, sadly, most of our church is not aware of it. And the impact here, help us understand, the impact here is not simply things like an interruption of intimacy in a marriage relationship, um, things of this sort, an obsession that begins to uh, almost like a... Um, uh, abuse of, of some you know, material substance, drug abuse, alcohol, what have you, uh, that, that suddenly gets in the way and becomes a bigger priority over other things like going to work, caring for the family, and so forth. But don't we see a direct correlation between porn consumption and violence against women in particular? Oh, no doubt. Um, not only violence, but the trafficking issue uh, is tremendous. Uh, the uh, it, it, there's so many things that come out of the consumption of porn. It, it's mind-boggling how much it fuels and uh, illicit other activities and so forth. And uh, and so let's be clear when you say when you say the let's be clear when you say the trafficking issue. You're you are talking about human trafficking, essentially sex slavery, correct? Absolutely, and it's so terrible that when you see the average age and uh, type of person that's involved in this as far as who's being trafficked, it just rips your heart out. We're talking about children. And and if you think that this is happening in some far-off country, uh, I have the sad news to tell you that it's probably happening somewhere right near your neighborhood. 
and and most of us are completely unaware of this. And what's fueling this is the entire uh, porn industry uh, and the consumption of this. Uh, see, this is never a static sin. Uh, when we talk about this, uh, you know, sin, the brokenness in this, it never, ever, ever stays the same. In fact, I would even say, uh, because of the technology that we're involved with today and the uh, high speed this and that, what's happening is there's an accelerant taking place that's unprecedented. You know, it used to be, what, 21 days to make a habit? Well, in today's uh, Internet and high speed, it no longer takes 21 days to get hooked on porn. It takes 21 minutes, sometimes 21 seconds. And I'm not exaggerating because the type of porn that was offered on these 30-day subscriptions is so vile. It's so, it rapes the mind in such a way that um, it, it's profoundly devastating to the user, and it happens in seconds. All it takes is one look, and a person can be devastatingly uh, addicted, and it's like no other compulsion uh, known to man. And, uh, and this is part, partly because God wired uh, us to, to respond this way, but to our spouses, uh, and not to elicit uh, material like this. So when, when you see this take place, and you see that uh, a man or a woman who's involved in this type of uh, behavior uh, is looking at something on pixels, it never, ever, ever satiates. And so he's looking, or, or that person's looking for something else. And so this is where you see the violence, the trafficking, all of this other types of behavior come into play, and it fuels it uh, like a nitroglycerin on a fire. And what's, uh, what's I think, additionally shocking about this, to put it in perspective, regulations on this topic are, are virtually non-existent. I mean, certainly we have regulations in relationship to things like child pornography, for example. Not that that ever really uh, stopped anyone, but... Back in the day, I'm talking pre-internet days, you either had to get down to the seedy end of town in order to gain access to this, or if it got sent in the mail to you, the postmaster general at least had some control, some, some modicum, as broad as it might have been, of community standards. But today, no such regulations exist, and anybody who's ever accidentally ran across something uh, doing an innocent Google search knows it's it's pretty much... No holds barred when it comes to what can be produced and made available for public consumption and for profit on the Internet. You're absolutely right. You have no idea how profound what you just said is. When, uh, when these porn distributors uh, sent out their tens or hundreds of millions of, quote, free porn subscriptions for 30 days, there was no regulation. There was no um, uh, way to uh, limit the age of who consumes. And, and so what we're seeing now is very, very young people consuming this uh, material. And, and when I say young, I'm not talking about teenagers. No, no, no. We're talking uh, eight, seven, six, five, four years old. Yes. Uh, and, and this is happening in our homes silently and secretly. And most people are completely and totally unaware of this. And so uh, they did this on purpose, of course, uh, because all they're looking for is a buck. And uh, they will be, unfortunately, very successful at this unless there's an intervention, unless there's a loving intervention. And that's what we hope and pray for and are a part of is that intervention process to help somebody who's caught up in the type of tractor beam to get out of it and to get out of it without further shame. 
I want to, when we come back after the break, pivot to that aspect of the topic because there are people eavesdropping on this conversation right now that are confronted by this demon at this very moment. Wives that are watching, husbands that have disintegrated into this, uh, this torrent of, of uh, pornography that, that has gotten a hold of them. And, of course, ease of access and being stuck at home has only exacerbated the problem. If you've just joined us, Clay Allen is with us, founder and president of Avenue, a sexual restoration ministry founded along with his wife, Susan. Information available on the web at avenue.works. That's avenue.works. Or you can call toll-free 877-326-7000. That's 877-326-7000. We'll talk about... Hope and healing, as our conversation with Clay Allen continues after this. 5.50 on the clock. Let's get you updated on traffic. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Sexual sin, as we know, goes back to ancient times and is delineated very early on in Scripture. And yet, as much as scripture never changes, the impact that this particular sin is having on humankind has increased exponentially. And oddly, Clay Allen, founder and president of Avenue, uh, as, as much as scripture is timeless and warns us of the dangers, um, with this exponential increase in the proliferation of pornography and its impact on relationships, it's almost as if we really haven't caught up to the dangers of it all. And I think that's most notable within the church, because while we have the key, we hold the answers, we're largely silent on this topic. Why is that? I mean, is there a sense of embarrassment? Does this hit too close to home for the church? Yeah, you've asked a $64,000 question, Craig. Um, there's multiple answers to that Um I believe part of it is that the the church uh, as a whole uh, would like very much to deal with this problem, uh, although they see it as perhaps uh, something too uh, too difficult to get involved in. Um, they want to sometimes pretend like it's not really a problem, um, that this is just a phase perhaps in an individual's life. What they uh, perhaps don't realize in that process is the absolute devastation that's taking place in a person's uh, heart and mind and, and, and literal in that person's brain. Uh, the brain is changing rapidly as a result of porn consumption. Sometimes, too, sadly, uh, pastors are themselves involved in this behavior. Uh, there's polls all over the place as far as what the numbers really look like, but uh, the ones that I trust and look at show something in the neighborhood of north of 50%, somewhere near near 60% of uh, the clergy are involved in this type of behavior. So naturally, if that's the case, they don't want it coming too close to home where they may be exposed. And so while there's lots of answers, uh, or lots of uh, answers to your question, it leaves the question, the big question, how will we face Jesus uh, when we face Jesus, because all of us will, and, and the process of providing the answer to rescuing, uh, reaching, rescuing, and restoring people who are struggling. Whether we are struggling ourselves or whether we're beyond it or never dealt with this, the question uh, is asked of all of us, how, how do we help our, our church family, our brothers, our sisters, 
get help in this area. And so I believe part of the answer is getting the word out and then doing something about it. Uh, there, there are so many things happen that when somebody thinks that this is not a problem and it's a phase issue in a person's life, all during that time of the, quote, phase, the person consuming this material, literally there are changes happening in that person's heart and in his literal physical brain that's happening so quickly and so devastatingly that the phase will be uh, perhaps permanent if not interrupted uh, in a loving sort of way and provided the antidote. And so uh, there's lots of answers to the question. None of them are good, uh, but there's about 7% of churches now actually doing something about this, according to a recent poll. And I see that this is happening more and more, so that there are more and more churches coming on board to do something about this, because this is really God's answer. His distribution network is the church. It's you and I. It's your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who decide, you know, we're not going to allow Satan to take over our, our fellow brothers and sisters' hearts and minds and families and finances and destinies. We're going to do something about this. And the way you do something about this is you provide a confidential program so that people can get help confidentially and, uh, and not be shamed further. And, and then what, one that really works uh, has, is time-proven, that uses biblical principles. And there's so many incredible things in the Bible that will help somebody not just overcome this in their life, but the, the beauty about this and why I do this is because it leads to something absolutely glorious in that person's future if they take the step to get help. And, th- and that's really the message that God wants to have all of his church uh, express to those that they serve. There is, though, a sense of urgency, isn't there? I mean, as much as we know that there is salvation in another and that there is healing available for sexual brokenness um, and the ability to be an overcomer. Um, You allude to the notion that as broad spread as this is and insidious as it is, I I would imagine that the longer that one is steeped in all of this, the greater the impact will be on relationships and thereby the bigger the challenge in, in getting free. Am I right? Absolutely. In fact, you know, it's really incredible. Um, Science has actually uh, made some interesting discoveries recently, one of which uh, about porn and somebody's brain. One of the things that porn does to a brain is it uh, it causes the brain uh, to seek out more extreme porn, and as porn is consumed in more extreme ways, it corrupts one's deepest, most basic instinct, and it makes that person feel that those uh, behaviors are more common and acceptable than they really are. And and, and this uh, literally rewires the brain. Uh, there's proof of this now scientifically, not that we need the science to uh, uh, d- uh, prove the Bible, but it's always kind of interesting when science does prove the Bible to be accurate, because God does show up in science. He did create it. Uh, and, and the beautiful thing about this, Craig, is when when a man or a woman who's had their mind altered, literally altered for the worse, uh, physiologically, uh, by brain rewiring, God has a, a part of the Bible that he promises that if you do something uh, uh, to, uh, to help one's rewiring get reversed, you can actually change your brain. God gave each one of us control of changing our brains. And, and this is one of the promises that we help people experience. It's found in, of course, Romans 12, too, where God says don't conform to the pattern of the world. We're 
for example, uh, all, all kinds of people are using porn. He essentially says, don't use that, but transform your renewing of uh, your, your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then it says something very interesting right after that. It says, then you will know and test and approve what God's will is. And, and this is so incredible to me, and I have seen this happen in people that we have helped. Imagine that your brain um, uh, wiring is like a pathway. And, and then when you use porn-driven pathways, uh, as you use porn, when you don't use those anymore, what happens is those pathways start to disappear. And then as you focus on a new direction, the, the brain simultaneously lays down new pathways that direct you to those new good God things. It's at that point that God says, then you'll know what my will is for your life. How incredible. This is so profound. It, when somebody starts to learn what their God-designed destiny is, what their God purpose is, what they're calling you, and then God says, I'm going to help you experience that. That's what's sitting on the other side of this that most people don't see and don't experience unless they get help. Help and healing is available, and I want to mention not only that this is uh, completely private, this is a proven plan that has a history of results. You can find more information. Go online to avenue.works. That's avenue.works. You can also call toll-free 877-326-7000. That's 877-326-7000. As much, Clay Allen, as aspects of this needs to be worked out in a very private atmosphere, uh, you do do workshops and seminars, and you're willing to come to speak to men's groups and to churches about the impact of pornography and sexual addiction and what it has on the detrimental side effects to relationships both horizontally and vertically. Absolutely, and I and my wife are living proof, along with thousands of people that we've helped, that, that this is real. This is not theoretical. It's experiential for us. We have lived it. We, we live in the trenches with helping people every single day all across our country, and we started it right here in the Bay Area. And it's our passion to help people understand how much Jesus loves them and wants to pull them up and out of this area of their life and to set them on a, uh, on a path to experience the, the brilliant destiny that God has for every single one of us to live. Information available on the web at avenue.works. That's avenue.works. Or call toll-free 877-326-7000. Our thanks to Clay Allen, founder and president of Avenue, for being with us. All right, 6.05, we're late. Let's get caught up on some traffic here. As we do so, we'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center.